Hey guys, if you are struggling to stay focused, I get it. With everything that's going on in the world right now, it feels a little bit like Groundhog's Day. The kids are always here, and so there is no difference between Monday and Saturday. And it's one of those reasons that I want to make sure that you guys know about our Start Today brand. Start Today began with my Start Today journal. Several years ago, I came up with this product for myself that would help me to practice gratitude and to make sure that my goals were crystal clear in my mind as part of my morning routine. At the beginning of this year, I launched my priority planner, which was a way for you to take the biggest goal in your life and break it down into bite-sized pieces so that you could actually start to make traction. So if you have not checked them out yet, oh my gosh, go to starttoday.com and check out our newest line available in Target stores all over the US and of course at target.com. If you know that right now you need to stay on task, you need to stay on target, please check out these products. I think that you will love them as much as I do. Starttoday.com or target.com to start today the right way. Hey, you guys, if you like the Rise or Rise Together podcast, you're going to love my monthly live coaching series. What did you just say? I'm doing a coaching series. I'm, I'm like your favorite coach, but with hair extensions and eyelash extensions and a pension for Beyonce. What kind of coaching are you coaching? Okay, thank you for asking. There's actually two different classes. One is life coaching. Those are for people who want to work on their relationship, their health, their personal, all the personal stuff. And then there's something I'm really excited about, business coaching. I've been an entrepreneur for 15 years. I'm really proud of the company that I've built, and I want to share that wisdom with you. So if you own a small business and you want to dig into how to do social media, how to find new clients, how to grow your revenue base. This is how we're going to do it. I bet they can get more info at thehollisco.com. You sure are right, buddy. You can watch videos about what the coaching series is all about, how you join in, and what is included with your membership. First, I got to interview the Bush sisters, and now I got to interview Joe Biden. I think it's amazing because you guys, I know less than nothing about politics, but this was an incredible interview about Joe's most recent book, Promise Me Dad, about the loss of his son to brain cancer. And what's so amazing about Joe's experience is that he lost his son and decades before he lost his wife and baby daughter. So this is a man who knows what it's like to deal with grief who knows what it's like to keep going even in the face of severe hardship. His story was so beautiful. I loved the book. And I think you'll love this time with him as much as I do. That was a hell of a film, wasn't it? (laughs) I really loved the sound mixing in that one. It was good. (laughs) How you doing? I'm glad that everybody skipped the uh, Justin Timberlake concert tonight to to be here. That's a big deal. I'm glad my daughter wasn't here, had to make a choice. (laughs) Um, 
I have no idea how I have this distinct honor, but I am so grateful Thank to get to sit it. with you, of course. Uh, so I'd love to ask, I think most of us believe that we have some idea, we have, we have an idea of who you are or an opinion of who you are. I would love it if you could describe yourself to someone who's never met you. Well, that's a, that's a hard thing to do. I don't know. I mean, uh, I, maybe I never had that question asked to me before. <laughs> maybe the way that I would describe myself is, uh, like I suspect most of you would, based on the values you were raised to to think matter. Um, I was telling you when we were talking backstage that my dad had an expression. He said, uh, he used to use it all the time, that families, the beginning, the middle, and the end. Everything resolves around family. And that, no, for real. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, I, uh, I have, uh, and my family has been uh, raised in the public eye. I've been a, uh, I've been a senator since I've been 29 years old. Uh, all of my children, there were two and, I mean, just three and four years old when I got elected, and one and a half, and my daughter wasn't, fourth daughter wasn't born yet. And, um, but my dad and my mom had sort of a basic value set. My dad used to say that, remember, Joe, that, uh, you either have to be a man or a woman of your word, or you're not a man or a woman. Your word is your bond. It's the thing. My colleagues, and you'll even see the president, former president, other presidents kid me, and they say, yeah, I know, I'll give you my word as a Biden. We had an expression in the family that if you meant, if something really was important, my and my parents wanted to know exactly what the deal was, it says, give me your word. If you gave your word, that was your sacred oath. And, uh, um, and I think that uh, most everything that uh, I've cared about in the way I was raised and hopefully the way I've conducted myself is that everybody is entitled to be treated with dignity. Everybody, no matter what. No, I really mean it. My dad would no more walk by the guy at the shoeshine stand and not say hello to him and say hello to the chairman of the board of the DuPont Company and Hotel DuPont than fly. We, I was telling you the most devastating thing my dad could say was, you disappoint me. <laughs> he only said it twice in my life. I remember both times. And I was a U.S. senator. He, was, uh, he had retired three times. He hated not working. And he went back to work. And he was in Philadelphia. We live in Wilmington. And I went up to, I had to be up there and we take him to lunch and walking along, he was ahead of me and I was with another guy, a good friend, and a guy walked across the street and asked me for some money, he was begging. And I never in my life ever did this before, but what made me do it, I don't know, the guy that I had practiced law with had a saying, he'd joke and he'd say, I'm working this side of the street. And I said, I'm working this side of the street. And my dad stopped dead. My dad never had any money. Uh, and he turned around, walked back, opened his wallet. He had $40. He took out the $40 and gave it to the guy and said, you disappoint me. Oh. You disappoint me. And he was right. I'd never done that ever before and I'd never done it again. But my father really meant it. And my mother, 
and I'm not sure I've lived up to it, but my mother would say to, I was lucky, I had one of those moms that, not a joke, everybody in the neighborhood wished she had been their mom. Uh, my mom was, we, we, my sister and I would go out on dates, we'd be due back, have to be in by 12 o'clock, and uh, um, we'd come home and there'd be friends of ours, my mother would be hearing confession in the kitchen, you know. <laughs> Not a joke. We, we, we had a small split-level home, and you walk into the dining room, and it's immediately walked into the dining room, and the door, it was like 15 by 18 in the dining room, and immediately left, there's an arch to the kitchen. There was a, a table in the corner, but you couldn't see the whole table. You could see the chair nearest the door. And my, my, my mother was consoling one of our friends. You'd walk in at 12 o'clock and she'd go like this with her hand, like, keep moving, don't come in. She'd never, not a joke. But anyway, my mom was a, a, a really, she was an old Irish lady who was principled as hell. And she'd say, you know, Joey, bravery lives in every heart and someday it will be summoned. Someday it will be summoned. And her, her favorite phrase was that uh, courage is the most important virtue because without courage, you can't love with abandon. It takes courage to love with abandon. So the way I guess I describe myself is always trying to, not doing it, but kind of live up to my parents' expectations of what they expected of the four of us. And... Um, and in a bizarre way, <clears throat> I'm still trying to do it. Uh, the book, Promise Me Dad. Um, I, uh, I hope, I get up every morning hoping that Bo's proud of me because uh, um, he made me promise that I wouldn't uh, quit. I wouldn't step aside. I'd continue to work in the things that have animated my whole life. And, uh, and so, uh, I'm not sure. I'm just rambling now. I don't, it's not, <laughs> but, but it's hard to describe. I, last thing my dad would say, he said, it's a lucky person who gets up in the morning. And he really would say this, the lucky person gets up in the morning, puts both feet in the floor, knows what they're about to do, and thinks it still matters. Mm. Those of you who are a little bit older, think of how many people you know have been very successful and done really well at whatever their, their, their occupation was, who no longer think it matters. It doesn't get them up in the morning with a sense of purpose. And I think the greatest gift that you can give a child is uh, an opportunity to find that sense of purpose. What is it that makes them think what they're doing every day is worthwhile? And um, I was lucky. Uh, uh, my mom and dad gave me that. How did you find your purpose? Well, um, <clears throat> that film that they put together, that I've seen, I, I have trouble watching it, but it's, uh, I was asked by the people who did the book, um, who published the book, um, what it was that I wanted to be. And I can remember as young as being a kid, and it's in that film, 
saying to my mom where they got the film, the old family films they dug up, is that I want to make a difference. I want to do something to make a difference. And um, as a kid, we moved from Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, which I loved and my family moved because there was, in the middle of the 50s, coal had died. I was in second grade, third grade. Um, my dad didn't work in the coal mines. My, 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 my dad was a white collar worker, a salesperson who was a very well-read, high school educated guy. And he moved down to Wilmington, Delaware, where he had been raised as a kid till he was a senior in high school when his family moved to Scranton because there was work down there. And I remember being dropped off at the little Catholic high school on a place called the Philadelphia Pike. It was a four-lane access road, but it was a very busy highway. So even though we only lived about six blocks away, my mother would drive me, so it would cross in the parking lot. And I remember one day getting out of the out of uh, the car, she dropped us off and, and asking my mother, Mom, why is that bus go by all the time and only has, only has, Afri it used to be, say, colored, only has African-American kids in it? And she said, well, because they're not allowed to go to school with white kids. Now, in Scranton, I heard someone cheer in Scranton, but there, there, are, very, there are virtually no black African-Americans when we were growing up. I didn't know it. Delaware has the eighth largest black population in America. It has 19.8% of its population is African-American. And I remember thinking how wrong and unfair that was. And that's what animated my interest, having nothing to do, I never thought about politics. But I got involved in the civil rights movement as a kid. And in high school, I was the only white employee in college working in the projects as a lifeguard, because that's where I wanted to be. And, and so uh, it was always about something that I thought that maybe I can make a difference. Um, and I didn't know what that difference meant, but I, uh, um, it was always something I wanted to, just wanted to kind of fix things. I don't know how to explain it at, at that age, other than that. And um, so for me, uh, the purpose was um, to, you know, you'd see things, and I thought maybe I can, maybe I can help fix them. But I got involved in the civil rights movement in a big way, and that led one thing led to another, and all of a sudden I was being asked to run for office. And you told me backstage when you were elected to Senate at 29, is that right? You were the first senator that you knew. I'm the first guy I knew. Yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> You know, the, it used to be, until the Ninth Amendment, that senators were elected by state legislative bodies. And then, after World War II, there was a change, 17th Amendment, that uh, the first time senators were popularly elected in their home states. And I'm the second youngest popularly elected senator in American history. And, and I didn't know anybody. I come from a, not a poor background, but a modest background, a three-bedroom you know, split-level home with four kids and a grandpa living with us, and in a safe neighborhood, it was like urban sprawl. You know, the developments, cornfields that developers bought and made, put 60 houses the same in, and it was the fastest-growing county for a long time until the early 70s uh, in in, uh, in the country, in Newcastle County. And uh, but uh, I, I didn't I, I didn't know anybody. My mom and dad were never 
involved in um, uh, in politics. But my but my mother and father uh, instilled in all of us that if we saw something we thought was wrong, we should we should speak up. Um, and uh, I remember my dad was a gentle man, as I said, that never raised his hand to any of us. My dad used to say that the, uh, the single greatest sin is the abuse of power. And the cardinal sin, the cardinal sin, is for a man to raise his hand to a woman or a child. And we were encouraged to say something, speak up. I almost, uh, almost got arrested because I intervened when a guy in a supermarket was pushing his wife around. And I had no right to do what I did, but, um, but I knew. Anyway, so we were raised in a way that, <laughs> we were raised in a way that we, that again, it was all about um, abuse of power. That it didn't matter whether it was a, a corporation, a government, an individual, whatever. It was the one thing that was, uh, that was sort of embedded into everything and, you know, it's embedded into my religion as well. It's embedded into my, I'm not proselytizing. <laughs> but all kidding aside, I mean, you think about what, what is the essence of who we are as a country. It's the way we set everything up. We set it up to make it difficult for an individual or institutions to abuse power. That's why we separated government. We did all, I didn't think of that at the time. I didn't think in those terms. But so all the things I found myself when I got elected, getting myself into, getting myself involved in, they all, I, I was asked, my, my number two son, who's a brilliant kid, he's smarter, he's much brighter than I am, for real. Um, he, he went to Georgetown and he joined a thing called the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. No proselytizing, it's just going into, into tough neighborhoods and providing for running homeless shelters, things like that. And that's what he did in Oregon. He ran an emergency service shelter thing for a year. And um, uh, he was at Georgetown and they have what they call a retreat where students show up in Gadsden Hall and they and they talk about things of consequence. And he asked me, he never asked me to come to his university. My poor son, Bo, the one who passed away, I did every one of his graduations. <laughs> I went everywhere, you know, but Hunt was like, that's okay, Dad, you know. Um, but the only time he ever asked me to, uh, uh, to speak um, was he asked me to speak at, the, at, this, at this retreat on campus. And uh, the president of the university was an, an incredibly fine man, asked me if I would speak on how has my faith informed my public policy. And I've never, because I, 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 I never, ever, ever let, or talked about my faith in terms of how I vote or don't vote. That's, that's, that's a private thing, it's not, and I, I think the separation of church and state are really important. So I never thought about it before. But I, but I never worked as hard on a speech as I did that one for my son. And what I realized after I really spent a lot of time, I spent the better part of four days writing the speech and thinking through what I'd say. And I realized that what, what informed my public policy was the abhorrence of the abuse of power.
I, uh, I was asked to run as a young kid, as a Republican, and the, in my state, the Progressive Party in Delaware was the Republican Party. It was like the Rockefeller Republican Party. And the Democratic Party is a Southern Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds of my state, ge geographically, anybody from Delaware knows they talk at you like this, a lot of good old boys. We were, you know, we're, we're the Delmarva Peninsula. It's a state that's split significantly politically up and down. But I could not, I did not like Richard Nixon at all because I thought he abused the power. I, and, and I remember, so I look back on everything I've ever done in my career that I've led on in foreign policy. It was Milosevic and the war in Bosnia. I, that's the reason I wrote the Violence Against Women Act. That's why I got involved in the civil rights stuff in the beginning. That's why I got involved in pushing gay marriage as, as everybody's right to be able to do whatever they want to do in terms of that. And, and so, mm -hmm. so my point is, I, I, I didn't realize it, and maybe you've been, you guys have been through this, so you've got to ask the question, what is the thing that motivates you the most? What is the thing that, and I didn't realize until I had to make that speech. And I look back on everything that I had done in my career in the Senate, and it was about the abuse of power. First piece of legislation ever introduced was eliminate redlining eliminating the rights of banks to make a woman have to have her husband co-sign. Uh, you know, I mean, no, but I mean, because I thought all these things were about, about, I mean, no, no great cause, but about, you know, abusing power. And um, so that's, that's kind of how, uh, um, how my career had run. So when I first got to the Senate, um, I was, uh, um, when I first got to the Senate, as I know you know, I didn't want to go to the Senate. Yeah. I got elected to the Senate in 1972. As I said, I was 29 years old. Uh, we didn't know anybody in consequence. We didn't know the president of the bank. We didn't know the doctors. It wasn't our family doctor. We didn't know the person who ran the company. You know, we, we, we had none of that connection in terms of power. And, um, and, and when I won, it was, uh, talks about how life intervenes here. When I won, it was not unlike your meteoric rise. Mm -hmm. And I'm not being solicitous, yeah. I'm being serious. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I was all of a sudden this, you know, this, uh, you know, it's like the Greek tragedy, the golden boy, 29 years old, he wins, he wins in the year where Nixon wins 68% of his state, he beats the guy who had an 82% favor rating, you know, the new, they tried to make me into something. And it's easy to let that get to you. Mm -hmm. But as Barack always says, I remind him of that, you know, life has a way of intervening. And so I was down in Washington on December 18th, I was elected November the 3rd, December 18th, hiring staff, and I got a phone call from a first responder in the fire company, a young woman, I didn't know at the time, and they made her call, they asked her to call, she was so nervous, she said, you gotta come home, there's been an accident. I said, what happened? He said, there was a truck and your wife and the guy said, and he said, she's dead, your daughter's dead, your wife's dead and your sons may not live. And it was, um, so when I make a long story short, I didn't want to go to the Senate. And in Delaware, they make a big deal of it, not positive or negative, just 
I, I said, I'm going to go to the governor-elect, and my brother, who was younger than me, managed and raised the money for my campaign at age 25. My sister managed my campaign at 20—she was 25, he was 23. And, um, and so we were having him appoint someone to take my place so I wouldn't go. And uh, what happened was that um, a group of senators, Democrat and Republican, and I, I get— criticized for uh, reaching across the aisle, but I don't know how we make things work unless we move together here, but anyway. Um, but six separate senators, including two Republicans, came to see me and said, you got to be sworn in. And uh, I remember what Senator Mansfield, uh, the majority leader from Montana, a guy with incredible integrity, said, he said, there's been 1,700, only 1,702 people have ever been sworn in as a United States Senator. You owe it to your wife mm -hmm. and your children to have that done. Just stay six months and you can leave. Help us organize. We already had 58 Democrats and we would have no one to replace me in, but I didn't, I said, okay. I didn't go down the day I was supposed to be sworn in with everyone else, and so he was smart. He sent the secretary sent it up to the hospital yeah. room to swear me in yeah. with my boys. And I, anyway, one thing led to another. And I used to have to go down and uh, um, every Tuesday at three o'clock, I would show up to Senator Mansfield's office, the majority leader of the Senate, and I'd get an assignment. Well, I thought all senators get assignments. No senators get assignments. <laughs> no, no, no assignment. Nobody assigns anything to a senator. But it took me about five weeks to figure out what he was really doing and just taking my pulse, mm -hmm. see how I was doing emotionally. He's a wonderful man. And one day I walked into the Senate, and I used to always walk, you know, you see on television those gilded doors, you know, with the gold leaf in them. You walk in, you walk down to what they call the well of the Senate, and I checked with the Secretary of the Senate to find out when the last vote was going to be so I could get in the train and go 127 miles home to be with my, uh, 149 miles home to see my boys. And, um, and uh, so I'm walking through, and Jesse Helms from North Carolina, who was a very conservative and mildly racist guy at the time. Um, no, he made no bones about it. He was, um, uh, and uh, he was excoriating two friends of mine who became very close friends, Bob Dole, Republican, who's still one of my closest friends, and Teddy Kennedy, who was my closest friend in the Senate, because they introduced the precursor for the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that, he was saying that, this is confiscatory. No government has a right to tell a business person they have to have a curb cut to get into their building. Nobody has a right to do that. It's unfair to make buses have lifts again. And I thought, what a heartless thing. And I, fortunately, I, had, I was more afraid of missing the majority leader's appointment. Otherwise, I would have said something in politic in the floor. No one's ever doubted I mean what I say. The problem is I sometimes say all that I mean. Um, <laughs> And uh, so I walked in, and I was sitting in front of Senator Mansfield's desk, and he looked at me, and he said, talked in clipped tones, said, what's the matter, Joe? And I went on. I said, Jesse Elms has no social redeeming value. I don't understand. And I was really angry. And I guess I spoke for probably only a couple minutes. probably seemed like an hour to him. And he looked at me, and he said, Joe, he said, what would you say if I told you that two years ago, Dot and Jesse, and this is 1973 now, in May, 
Dot and Jesse Helms were sitting in their living room in Raleigh, North Carolina, reading the Raleigh Observer. And there's a picture of a young man, 14 years old, with braces from his ankles up under his arms, with two steel crutches, saying, looking out and saying, all I want for Christmas is someone to love me and take me home. He said, what would you say, Joe, if I told you they adopted him as their son? Wow. I said, I'm sure like a fool. He said, well, Joe, they did. Y'all, we are doing a community-wide challenge and it's totally free and I am challenging you to join us. It's called Next 90 Days, as in how can we be intentional, thoughtful leaders for the next 90 days? We're going to need our community. We're going to need accountability more than ever. So I want you to head over to theholliscode.com slash next 90. That's theholliscode.com slash N-E-X-T nine zero and join us. Every single week, Dave and I will be teaching on a different topic, things like perspective or reaching for joy or dealing with anxiety in these crazy times. We are going to give you so many free resources and surround you with community. When we did this at the end of last year, we had 650,000 people sign up and we feel like it can be bigger than ever come together in a community of like-minded people and let's learn how to choose our mindset no matter what is happening in the world around us. He said, Joe, it's always appropriate to question another man or woman's judgment. It's never appropriate to question their motive because you don't know what it is. And secondly, Joe, once you question motive, you can never get to go. You can never get to agreement. If I say you're in the pocket of big this or that, or you're, you're unethical, or you're not a decent person, and then I say, by the way, let's work out an agreement on this issue. No, but think of what the politics today is. Think of how it is today. And so it was the most important lesson I ever learned, but it was totally consistent with my dad's notion of, you know, I say to all you young people in here, don't let uh, networking become a verb. Um, you know, look beyond. Uh, try to figure out the person you're talking to, even if they strongly disagree with you, what, what they're, who they are, what their hopes or aspirations are, what their fears are, what it is that drives them. Because that's it's, politics, like all relationships, is all personal. It's all personal. You got to get to know the other person. So it was a great lesson I learned, and uh, it allowed me to be um, relatively successful as a senator. And um, if you notice, every time we had a problem, our administration was in trouble with the Congress, I was the guy that got sent up. You know, <laughs> Joe will do it. Um, Remember that ad, mom eats this cereal, dad eats this cereal, you try it. No, Mikey will try it. Yeah. Well, Mikey, you know. But, but, but it really is, it is, it turned out to be, I loved the Senate. And uh, I have great relationships, and I had great relationships with my Republican colleagues who I strenuously disagreed with. And I made no bones about it. I'm a very partisan guy in terms of my ideological points of view. But um, it just, well, anyway, <laughs> it frustrates um, me. You know, it's, it's incredible to hear the history 
that you drop casually into conversation, and I'm sure it does feel a bit casual to you. I was watching the RGB documentary, and uh, there you were, chairman of the committee. And I was curious what it feels like to carry the weight of this history. Is it an honor? Does it feel like a responsibility? The stories that you have that we know about and the stories that you have that you'd have to kill us if you told us. No, no, there, but there, there's, there's classified things, of course. But look, folks, um, one of the things I've always been relatively good at from the time I was a kid is um, bringing people together, negotiating things. I mean, getting, trying to make things work. Um, and I know, I mean, no one's ever accused me of not being strong-willed or having hard ideological edges to me, what I believe, but, but it is, um, uh, and so it turns out that I later learned I presided over more Supreme Court nominees than anyone in American history, um, just because I got there so early and I was chairman or a ranking member for so long. And, um, and uh, what it is, is an awesome responsibility. And, but it's something that, um, maybe the best way to say it is this. One of the real lessons I learned was that you, the currency, the coin of the realm in a legislative body or in the United States Congress or president or vice president are two things. One, your word. When you give your word, do you keep it? Do you keep it? And two, do you know what you're talking about? No, for real. <laughs> but, but seriously, look at, this, look at the Senate or the Congress. You can tell the people other senators and congresspersons look to to determine whether or not they're right or wrong in the facts. And it was way back in the energy crisis, I was a kid, and there was a guy named Russell Long from Louisiana. I was able to talk like this, one of the smartest guys in the world. He, he tried to come off like Mr. Magoo, but he knew everything he was doing. And he was extremely powerful. He was Kingfish, Huey Long's son. And uh, he was very powerful. And it was during the energy crisis when gas lines wrapped around the cities. And uh, Scoop Jackson was from the state of Washington, and he was the leader of those insisting on price controls on gas and oil. And Russell Long didn't want any of it. So it was the producing states versus the consuming states. And it was the issue before the Congress. When I got to the Senate, my interest was foreign policy. You had to become an expert on arms control if you wanted to be in the game, because that was the only thing that was going on between Russia and the United States. Well, on the domestic side, it was all about energy. And so Scoop Jackson came to me and said, would you manage this amendment? That was a, and I was a kid. I was there two years or three years. And, and it was a big deal to manage it. So, and it was on whether or not we would keep price controls on what they call stripper wells. So I said, sure, this is a great time. I'm going to be in the spotlight. I'm going to do this thing. And I got on the floor, and I made my case about price controls and why it was necessary, et cetera, and these outlandish prices. Anyway, to make a long story short, 
Russell Long stood up and he you know, he kind of I used to stutter badly, so I'm not making fun of anybody. He kind of talked like this when he talked. He talked real, real fast. And say, and he stood up and he went like this. And the managing the bill, he stood up. He said, "Does does my young friend from Delaware know what a stripper well is?" And I could feel the blood drain from my face. <laughs> I don't know what the hell a stripper well was. And there's a there, there's a there's a a, a, a board a, a whiteboard he has there. And he said, "Now he said, you know, here's here's how here's how it works." You know, he said, most wells, you dig down, you, you get down two, 3,000 feet, and you hit that earl, and it comes gushing up, gushing up. But after a while, sometimes it loses pressure. He said, so here's what you got to do. And he takes and he draws these two big boxes, and he has this well head drawn, and he takes it and he goes around, and he draws another. He said, now, nah, then, 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 then what you got to do, you got to dig another well. You go down 2,000 or 3,200 feet, take a right angle and a right angle, and he said, then you pump all that steam down there, it gets that Earl bubbling up, and you got Earl. <laughs> and there's a lot down there. And I looked at him, and he said, now let me ask my friend, should you charge the same amount of money for a bottle of that Earl as Earl as this comes gushing up? I took my lapel mic off and walked off the floor. <laughs> um, but I swore, I give my word, I swore I never would ever go to the floor when I didn't know more, at least as much or more than anybody else on the subject. And so one of the things that, that was consequential was that I took a great deal of pains for every Supreme Court justice to read, nominee, to read everything they wrote not, I don't mean generically, I mean everything they wrote, their decisions, their law school papers, the whole work, so I could, because I was of the view, and still am of the view, that, and I, I've always been a guy, I've written a lot on, in law review articles and other fora, on the role, the, the separation of powers. I taught a constitutional law course for years on separation of powers executive, legislative, and judicial branch. They're equal, intended to be equal. And the way it works is, if I ever get elected president, I might not believe that anymore, but uh, <laughs> no, all kidding aside. But they're equal, and here's what happens. The Congress, the, the United States Constitution says, the president shall propose a nominee. The Senate shall dispose of that nominee. So the president has no right as a matter of constitutional law to get who he wants. He's the only one that can nominate, but the Senate, because it represents the whole country, the whole country has a right to make a judgment whether or not the ideological disposition of this particular person is consistent with what they think the appropriate reading of the Constitution is. So. It used to be that, no, I won't go into all that, anyway, but. <laughs> so the end result is, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I very much suggested she be appointed because I thought it was really inappropriate and not reflective of who we are not to have women on the court. And no, I, I'm not. Preach. For, for real. And she was a hard-nosed, bright, but very humble intellectual who made no bones about what 
I believe my whole life when I was raised, that a woman can do anything any man can do and should know and, 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 and should have the opportunity to do that. And so uh, I took it very, very seriously, and most people on the committee did as well, to thoroughly understand her record and thoroughly understand when it was being misrepresented by the opposition making the case. So the best way to answer the question is, I take it very seriously because there's no judgment a U.S. Senator makes other than voting for, which doesn't happen, should, doesn't, on declaring war or not. There's no other judgment that is more consequential that a Senator makes because the court lives long beyond the President. It will go on for three or four or five Presidents. And what's happening, not five actually, but it happened once, but beyond what the President's term is. And so that's why it is, uh, you know, there, there's a lot at stake right now on the court with RPG. I mean, if she stays healthy and there's a Democrat elected president, it'll be a very different court than if Trump is reelected and, and yeah. there's a Republican yeah. president. I'm not, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying there are fundamental differences, though. It fundamentally alters the prescription of what constitutes constitutional rights for, for, uh, for Americans. And uh, so anyway, it's, it's a consequential decision and, uh, and it's, uh, they are, and I think most members take it seriously. There's literally hundreds of hours of work that go into being prepared so you know what you're doing. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you could have written a book about these stories and we would have all read it and we would have all loved it. And so I'd love it if you could tell us why you wrote this book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you much shorter answers <laughs> so that, um, and if you want me to expand on it, I will. I'm not trying to avoid, what, but I don't want to keep you. Nobody's bored. Um, <laughs> I think that... Uh, um, I, I, I wanted to write this book because I want it even more than the public. I wanted my progeny. I wanted my grandson and daughter, Bo's children. I wanted my great-grandchildren. I wanted my great-great-grandchildren to know what a remarkable man my son was. And he really was a remarkable man. Um, and by almost everybody in anybody's standard. And I wanted to write about what, who he was and why he was such a decent, honorable man. And I wanted the, the world to know. It turns out they tell me, which is nothing enjoyable about it at all, that something like six to 10 million people watched the whole funeral of my son. And, um, and what I realized, because I've been through this once before, is that there are millions of people who've been through what I've been through and a lot worse. Raise your hand if any of you lost someone really close to you, loved to cancer. 
with the house lights running, you see a lot of people are raising their hand. Some it's a husband, wife, son, daughter, mother, father. And um, what I realized is that, um, what I hoped is that I could write a book about what a remarkable man this was, but not write about the depth of the grief and the sorrow, but write about how there's hope to survive that kind of loss. And I believe you survive by finding purpose, finding something where you can see in the person you lost what you're doing, because they're with you. They're part of your soul, they're soul of your soul, bone of your bone, they, they're there. They're there. And so I didn't want it to, I wanted to be, give people hope that there's a way through this because maybe the nature of the business I've been in and all the constituent work, there are hundreds of thousands of people, some of you in this audience, been through a whole hell of a lot worse than I've been through, yet you get up every single morning and you put one foot in front of the other and you go out and you care for your family. You do your job. There's so many literal, not figurative, I mean this sincerely, heroes out there. And I hope that in writing the book, people would walk away feeling, okay, there's a way. Those of you who have suffered serious grief, what's the first thing that happens when a friend suffers a similar problem? They come to you. All they want you to do is look at them and say, you can do this. Just hug, am I allowed to talk about your Of course, yeah. Her, she had a brother committed suicide. Well, talk about a loss for a father or a mother. It's profound. But what people want to know is, is there a way out? Because you feel this black hole in your chest. And you feel like you're being sucked into it. And there's nothing, it's just dark. And people want hope. And I learned when I lost my wife and daughter in my little state, you'd show up because a friend or someone would have lost a, a husband, wife, you'd go to a viewing, not because I was a senator, just because I knew them. And I'd find family members and the, and the kids who didn't know me would see me in line and run up and just hug me. Just hug me. They didn't know me. Because they knew I understood. Those of you who've had serious loss, you know people mean well when they come up and say, I know how you feel. After all, I feel, you have no idea how I feel. Yeah. yeah. And you feel angry, yeah. but you know they mean well. But don't tell me you know how I feel. And it's an awful, you feel guilty feeling that. Because you know they're trying to be nice. But what I have found, the people who give the most, the most solace are people who you know went through it and they're still walking. They're still moving. And so I wanted to write the book also to let people know that you have to continue to live your life to be true to the person you're losing or lost. My son Bo was all about duty. To him, 
it was duty. Um, he was a uh, he, he was a bright kid. He was a lawyer. He volunteered as a federal prosecutor to go in the middle of the war in Bosnia to go to Kosovo and help them set up their criminal justice system. I'm gonna. This is bragging, but it's I'm gonna brag. He's the only foreigner has a significant military statue built and the only four-lane highway in Kosovo named after him, wow. the Josephar Bo Biden Highway, wow. because of what he did, because of what he brought, the peace he brought there. And so he was always, was, and so when, when he got sick, um, he, uh, we, we all made a deal. His brother is his closest friend in his life and his sister adored him. We all made a deal that we would never talk about the percentages. He was diagnosed with stage four glioblastoma. It's not, there's hope, but nobody. It's just the amount of time. And so, Bo, um, the point I wanted to make in the book was, I had an unusual relationship with Barack with the president. When he was an MD Anderson and he got the diagnosis, we all knew what it meant, but Bo called us in the room after the final diagnosis and said, Dad, Hunt, Mom, let's make a deal. No talk of percentages. No talk of percentages. Everybody agreed. And the doctors came in, a wonderful, wonderful doctor, one of the greatest surgeons in the world, not just the country, Dr. Sawoya came in, he did everything he could, and uh, he came in and just embraced Bo and said, we're gonna have a real fight, but we can, there's still hope. And his, uh, his neurosurgeon uh, and the head of the Department of Neurosurgery, a wonderful man, came in and said, I remember pulling him aside and saying, what should we do? He said, what was he gonna do? He said he was gonna run for governor and he had no opposition. He was a city attorney general. And he said, well, go home and run for governor. Don't ever give up hope. Just go oh, and try to live your life. Do what you can do. And that's what Bo did. And he, and he wanted to, he worked every single day to finish his term. He went to work every day. He'd go to Philadelphia from, it's about 23 miles to go to physical therapy. And he, was, he had what they call aphasia, mm -hmm. which is losing the ability to recall proper nouns. And uh, he'd go to speech therapy at six in the morning, then he'd show up in his office, the attorney general's office until, uh, from 10 until six o'clock at night and come home. And he insisted he have a test done once a month to see if his, his cognitive capabilities weren't slipping. He didn't want anybody to think that he wasn't capable of making these decisions because he was losing control of it. Like he'd say, dad, can you make sure my, you know, uh, uh, my girl, well, Natalie, his daughter, he couldn't remember the name Natalie, but can you make sure my girl? And, uh, and so, uh, but he made his promise that he desperately didn't want anybody to feel sorry for him. And so he said, anybody asked what we're doing, Dad, he'd say, look at me, Dad. Just look at him and say, oh, he's doing great. He's doing great. Dad, promise me. And the reason for the name of the book is that with about, turns out it ended up being six months to go, uh, 
I went home, my wife and I would commute home from Vice President's residence on Friday to see him. He lived only, uh, the crow flies, less than a mile from us, a mile and a half on a drive. And we'd go over to the house and have dinner with him and then take the kids and things like that. So I went over this particular night, November, and uh, we had dinner and Bo asked his wife, Hallie, a wonderful person, to take the kids upstairs and then come back if she could, put them to bed. And my wife had gone home to change and he looked across the table at me and he said, Dad, um, uh, I know no one loves me and the whole world loves me much as you do, Dad. But he said, Dad, he said, I'm going to be all right no matter what happens. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that he had come to peace with his death. And he said, but Dad, promise me. This is not a joke. Promise me, Dad, you're going to be all right. I said, Bo, I'll be all right. He leaned across the table and grabbed my arm. And he said, Dad, look at me, Dad. Give me your word as a Biden dad. You're going to be okay. I knew what he meant. He knew what I was likely to do was drop out. He knew I'd take care of the family. He had nothing doubt about that, but he's worried. But it animated my whole life. I would stop, I'd step off the stage, turn inward. And I said, Bo, before I said, Dad, give me your word as a Biden. You'll stay engaged, Dad. Promise me, Dad. And I did. But it was a solemn obligation to continue to stay engaged. Now, I know the press rights, and they meant well, a really very, very bright columnist, really smart, wrote that, made it sound like she had spoken to Bo, that this was uh, on his deathbed, promise me, Dad, you run for president. That wasn't the case. Bo wanted me to run for president. And I had planned on running for president until he got the diagnosis. But I couldn't even tell my staff to discontinue the effort to put together a campaign, because if I did, they'd know Bo was terminal. So the only person I could talk to was Barack. And we had lunch once a week, every week, where we could just be ourselves and talk like, like brothers. He always referred to his, his friends. He'd say, Joe's like an older brother. He can tell me things other people can't. And I had to tell Barack, because Barack had given me, as the scholars write these days, more authority than any vice president's ever been given to be able to hire and fire and make decisions. When he turned something over me, he'd turn it over wholesale, because no president can handle everything that lands on his desk now. And so we first, second week, the entire national security team came in and said, Mr. President, we've worked out how to accommodate your position on Iraq with reality. And he put his hand up and he said, no, 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 no. He said, Joe will do Iraq. He knows more than you guys. Do with Joe. After I said, that's no way to make friends and influence people, Mr. President. <laughs> you know, and we'll do that. But all kidding aside, so I had to tell him because there weren't things I could stop doing and someone else could pick up. Because I was the one who 
good or bad, literally put together the Iraqi government. I was the one the body talked to. Nobody else talked. I was the one who was, you know, spending time with Poroshenko. I was the one that was setting up the Northern Triangle and all that. So it wasn't like it could turn it over to somebody and, and because, and the president didn't make any of those decisions because he knew I knew his position. We trusted each other with our lives and he knew I would never do anything inconsistent with what he thought or what the advice he knew that I would take if I gave it to him on something he didn't know. And there wasn't much he didn't know. And so it created a conundrum. And so the press made it sound like that, that Bo Biden made his father pledge that he was going to run for president, notwithstanding the fact that he died on May the 30th. But it wasn't that. It was just a commitment and a promise that all the things I've cared about my whole life, I would still keep doing. I would still stay engaged in. And so that's how this all came about in terms of writing the book. And, uh, and, uh, and those of you, and many of you have had serious loss, you know it's not hyperbole to suggest. How many of you wake up and lost a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter? And ask yourself, a year later, five years later, 10 years later, what would Mary want me to do? What would Bo want me to do? Am I meeting their expectation? And you all know, it matters. It matters to you right now, whether a living, healthy son or daughter looks at you and you know whether they really respect you. They love you, but do they really respect you? And I was really lucky. My two sons saved my life because they were the reason I got in trouble early on as a young 30-year-old senator when I was asked a question, I was honest. And I said, I can understand how someone can be completely sane and commit suicide, decide that I've been to the top of the mountain. I've been to the top of the mountain. No problem. I just, I'm not going to get there again. So I don't want to be here. But my sons kept me from doing something stupid. I've never, never had a drink in my life because there's too many alcoholics in my family going back. And I've always worried that I, I wouldn't be able to moderate what I did. So I've never had a drink. But I'd come home at night when I lost my wife and daughter and put a fifth of liquor, which we had a liquor cabinet, in front, I tell myself I'm going to drink it. I'm just going to, and I could never make myself do it because I wondered what would my boys think. And so I was saying earlier, you know, there was one, my, my boys raised me. Everybody talks about, well, Biden, you know, they write about Biden being a great father at home every night. He commuted 259 miles a day, and I made over, literally made over 8,200 round trips to go home and tuck my kids in bed. It wasn't for them, I needed them. I needed to crawl in bed with them. You know, a kid can keep an important thought for 10, 12 hours, but if you miss it, you miss it. It's gone, it's gone. And so, but I went home because I needed them. And I can remember they were 12 and 13 years old, we were at a function. 
Remember, they came walking in the door. And I'm sure you have similar kinds of recollections with your kids. And I remember looking at them and thinking, not how much I love them, not how much what good boys they were, but how much I look up to them. I looked up to them. They're better men than I am. And so for me, it matters, and for my wife, and for my, for example, I, no man deserves one great love, let alone two. When my wife and daughter were killed five years later, I, 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 I met Jill, who saved my life, changed my life, and I mean, I fell absolutely madly in love with her, thinking I could never, ever. I was in that 10 most eligible bachelor's list for five years, you know? <laughs> no, for real. You know, I used to have to inform the FBI because women would send me pictures of them not all together and dress, you know, and give them the FBI, that kind of thing. And everybody thinks it's really cool, movie stars wanting to go out. I hated it. But when Jill came along, although I had to ask her five times to marry me. <laughs> no, for real, Hard five times. The fifth time I was in South Africa trying to see Nelson Mandela and I got arrested with Andy Young and ended up coming back home and getting off the plane in Philadelphia. I drove directly to Wilmington, went to her apartment, knocked on the door. I'd been gone 10 days. She said, Joe, come on in. And I said, no. I said, give me my word. I said, you got my Irish up, my pride. I said, I'm going to ask you one more time. You don't have to tell me when, just if. I swear to God, this is God's true story, just if you will marry me. And if you won't, I understand, but I can't do this anymore. That's got to be it. And she stands at the door. I said, will you marry me? And this is what she did. Okay. <laughs> I said, all right, that's all I need. And my sister asked her, my best friend, my sister, who's a friend of hers, asked her, Jill, what made you change your mind? She said, I fell in love with the boys. <laughs> so anyway, the point is, guys, that uh, those of you who've been through this, you know it matters. It matters, and it matters to, it, you know, and it matters to your progeny. It matters to your, I, I want my, Bo's son and daughter to um, to know I was true to their dad's wishes and the like. So, and by the way, it gives you strength, though. At least it does. It gives me strength. It gives me purpose, and uh, it is, you know, um, it's uh, totally consistent with what I've wanted to do since I was a kid, and. Uh, I was lucky to have had him. One of the things that you say in the book that I loved was uh, someday you'll remember, you're, you're talking to a, a widow who had lost her husband, and you say, someday you will remember him, and it will bring a smile to your face instead of a tear to your eye. And I think in my own loss of my brother, what was a big deal for me was when his birthday became more powerful than the day that we lost him. And so I know we're coming up on, on Bo's birthday in a couple of weeks. 
And I just wondered, um, as something like that comes up, how are you able to well, celebrate and those of you who've been through this, you know, people come up and always ask you, how, you know, how am I going to do? How am I going to get through this? What's going to happen? And I remember the first loss. I remember getting a call from a guy who I never knew. He was 40 years my senior, a former, 50 years my senior. He was a former governor of the state of New Jersey, Governor Hughes. And he called me to express his sympathies. And he said, I know how you feel. And before I could say anything, else, I said, he said, I know how you feel. My saying, I know how you feel. He said, but then he told me the story how he'd go home for lunch as attorney general and walking across the green and a maid came running out saying, your wife dropped dead. So I knew he knew. And he said, something that I did that helped me maybe will help you. He said, every single night before I'd go to bed, I kept a calendar. And I'd mark in the upper right-hand corner of the box in the calendar what kind of day I had based on 1 to 10. Well, 1 was the, I felt them exactly the way I felt when the news, when I heard the news the first time. And at 10, you won't have any of those days, but it's the best day of your life. And he said, keep it for six months and don't look at it. Don't look at it. And after six months, take it out and get out a piece of graph paper and put it on a graph. He said, you'll find the down moments are just as far down as the moment you heard the news. But they get further and further apart. And he said, that's when you know. That's when you know you can make it. And for me, the solace I tried to bring is it's true. It's impossible for those of you who've been through a tragedy in the recent time to believe that it can ever, 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 the pain can ever go away. But there will come a moment when you open that closet and smell the fragrance, when you pass by that park, when you go by that restaurant the first time she or he kissed you, or you'll walk in to an environment where you just, all of a sudden, it reeks of the person you lost. And it's devastating. Birthdays, anniversaries. But there will come a moment, as hard as it is to believe, when the first thing happens is you smile first, remembering her, I remember. Then you may cry. But the smile comes first, and you know you've crossed over you know you'll be able to make it. And so for us, we still celebrate. We're, uh, the way I was raised, maybe like a lot of you, my dad's family, my mother's family, my grandparents, everything, the thing that we believe roots a family deeply is tradition. Tradition. So, we have had for my entire life, and before that, my mother and father's entire life, certain traditions on Christmas and birthdays and holidays and certain things you do. And for example, when Jill and I fell in love and got married, 
Her parents, she's one of five sisters within a wonderful family. By the way, every man should marry into a family with three or more sisters. <laughs> you know why? Because one of them will always love you. Not the same one. <laughs> one of them will always love you. The internal competition, I promise you, not a joke. One of them will always love you. It's a great solace. But at any rate, um, and so her parents wanted us to come home for Thanksgiving. My parents wanted us for Thanksgiving. And my deceased wife's parents, what a remarkable wife I have now, who kept an incredibly close contact with Nelia, my deceased wife's parents, wanted us to come to Thanksgiving. They were then living in Florida. They're from Auburn, New York, the Finger Lakes area. And so I didn't know what to do. And I had an old salt who was a guy named Wes Barthamus, who had been Bobby Kennedy's press secretary, and frankly became my administrative assistant to help me when I first got elected. As a 19-year-old, he landed on the beach and parachuted on D-Day, lost part of his face. He was just an incredible guy, brilliant. And he had a lot of wisdom. And I said, Wes, what the hell am I going to do? He said, he said, make a nuclear holiday. I said, what the hell's a nuclear holiday? He said, tell all three families that you're going to, from this point on, make Thanksgiving a holiday where just you, Jill, and the children are going to celebrate it alone. I said, where would I go? He said, Nantucket. I said, it's, it's November. Nothing's open in Nantucket. It's cold. He said, Nantucket. So we started going to Nantucket. And we've gone there for 46 straight years. Because it is tradition. But here's what happened. When... When Bo died, the first Thanksgiving, nobody wanted to go because they were afraid to look at an empty chair. They didn't want to do it. And, um, but uh, we did it and made everybody do it because you've just got to face it. And the traditions are sort of like built into the DNA of a family. Just like what we do on Christmas. Everybody does it a different way. Everybody has certain traditions. And there's these things that no matter how old you get, you always remember. And there are the things that sort of bind you. But at first, it's really, really, really hard. And so my son... And my daughter couldn't do it. So they didn't come. Both married, they didn't come. But it took my granddaughters, my grandkids. And uh, then the next year, it became possible to do it. But it is, um, and not a lot of people agree with me on this, I think it's important that you try to keep those links and ties that run so deep. I'll bet most everyone you remember what every Christmas morning was like, or what every birthday was like, or what every time you'd go to the beach or the mountains as a family was like. I mean, there are all those wonderful memories of shared that bring back so much that has happened to you all. 
And uh, so we finally, uh, this Christmas, got back after three years to be able to, you know, all of us, uh, you know, we have a tradition. My dad, is, you know, dad goes downstairs to see if Santa Claus came and uh, turn on the lights and, you know, make sure everything's out. And then all the kids line up on the stairs based on age, the youngest first to the oldest. And that's how you got to come down the stairs. And that's, well, I realized when we didn't do that the first Christmas, how much it affected my grandkids. They missed it. They really missed it. I'm not suggesting that makes any sense what we do, but my point is they're the same things that, that we always did. And so, but it's still, it's still hard. And what's hard as well is that um, we, uh, I, I'm a practicing Catholic. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Except, I mean, I'm not, but because I find a lot of us, a lot of people find solace in ritual. And so I find solace going to Mass, it's crowded, but I'm all alone when I'm in Mass. Just me. Me and my ability, and sometimes i got to admit to you, I'm not even sure there's a God. I believe there is, but some, it's not like I am so certain of everything. But to me, it's solace. It's like, you know, Hari Kushner, you know, you know, humming or something, I don't know. But, 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 but it's more than that. You know, I carry a rosary and say the rosary, but most of that is just, it, it is a thing that is familiar and allows me to basically meditate about what's going on. And, uh, and so once a year, we have a memorial mass at my church, an old, very old Catholic church in Delaware, St. Joseph's, for my wife and daughter. And we visit the gravesite. And the boys and I, now the boy and I, just go. And Jill brings markers for us, the grave markers and the like. And uh, we say a prayer because it's the thing together. The thing that's worked is there's this special bond I had with the boys because of, this, of the mutual loss. They were in the car when it happened. It's like a steel belt that runs through our chests and connects us. And so it was important. And now we do the same thing for Bo's Memorial Mass. And I'm not saying it's easy, but it gets, by the third year, it was, you could feel him more. Yeah. You know, that sounds silly. I, I'm not trying to be spirit. I don't know. I, I, you probably think I'm crazy. You be but, whoever you want to be. Well, but, but it's just there's certain things that bring solace. There's certain things that bring solace. And for everybody, they're different things. And it's really hard. It's really hard to sort of step back into them and have the person who's gone present, there, real to everybody. Bo's still with me. Bo's still with his kids. He's there. He's part of them not going away. And I believe that, and it makes it, it, makes it easier. Um, but, you know, it, it, it just takes, it just takes, uh, it just takes time. 
And some things are so poignant that even after, in the case of my daughter Anelia, even after 45 years, there's still, every once in a while just kind of completely catch you. Yeah. Catch you off guard. Um, but everybody deals with it differently. But, you know, I, I believe, I believe with a deep love, there's, you're, you're kind of, it's hard to separate the spirit of the person you loved and loved you so much from who you are. It's totally different. It's not satisfying, but it's, but it's there. And as long as I look at my son Hunter, I see Bo. Bo's alive. As long as I look at my little grandson named Hunter, Bo, instead of naming him another Joseph R. like he was the third, he, my son Hunter had two girls and went to him and said, I'm never going to have a boy. Name him after me. <laughs> and so he's Hunter Biden. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I look at little Hunter and I see his dad. I see his dad. But now with my grandchildren, you know, I'll be with them. It's been three years. And you'll hear little Hunter say to his older sister, Natalie, who's 14, he's 12, Natalie, you know, dad wouldn't want you to do it that way. <laughs> you know, it's, so it's, it's, you know, but it's now, it's now taken on, a, you know, a bit of normality. It's hard for you to believe if you're working on it now that it does, but it eventually does. I want to uh, take a moment to acknowledge you. Uh, lots of people walk through hard things. Very few people are strong enough leaders to blaze a trail and to light the way for the others who come behind them. And we are so appreciative of your wisdom and your heart today. Uh, wow. Texas, will you join me in welcoming and thanking Vice President Joe Hey, folks. I had a... I had a grandpa from Strand, Pennsylvania. His name was Ambrose Finnegan. And um, back in the days when, in that part of the world, Irish Catholics didn't go to college, he came out to California, was an All-American football player at Santa Clara, I'm back as a newspaper man. He was one of those Irishmen of rectitude. He'd never wear funny hats and, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, but every time I walk out of my grandpa's house, he'd yell for true. He'd say, yell, Joey, keep the faith. And my grandmother, Finnegan, would say, no, Joey, spread it. Go spread the faith, guys. We can do anything. We can do anything. And it's soon departed. The advanced reader copies of Girl Stop Apologizing are officially out in the world, which means for the first time ever, people besides my editor are reading my new book. And I can't wait for you to read it too. I wrote Girl Stop Apologizing because I wanted to give women permission to do just that. Stop apologizing for who you are. Stop apologizing for the dreams and goals and hopes you have for your life. The tagline for this book is a shame-free guide for embracing and achieving your goals. So if you 
have big audacious dreams for your career or great fantastic personal goals for yourself this is the book for you it comes out march 12th and you can pre-order now on amazon.com <laughs>